A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome back to The Andy Rowe Show. Nigel Ely was working with Sky News when the famous statue of Saddam Hussein was toppled in Baghdad. With the help of a US Marine, Nigel managed to get his hands on a piece of that statue, the left buttock to be precise, and the buttock is now in hiding, on the run, and estimated to be worth 7 to 10 million US dollars. You're going to hear Nigel's action-packed story of how he came face-to-face with three angry American gunships, how he is ambushed, shot at, interrogated, and ultimately escaped with the modern-day version of the Mona Lisa. I hope you enjoy the episode. A lot of people ask me after listening to the podcast if I actually use the products that I talk about before the show. Genuinely, I love packed coffee. I brew it in my espresso maker every single morning and I never run out because I've signed up to a flexible monthly plan. What that means is, after creating a plan, which is super quick and super easy, I get freshly ground coffee through my letterbox once a month. Get yourself signed up to packcoffee.com and make sure you use the code ANDYROW at the checkout to show your support for the show and you'll also get five quid off your first order. And if you're a brand or company that wants to get involved with the show, just reach out to me on Instagram or Twitter or any of our social media channels. We'd love to hear from you. Nigel Spud Ely, thank you very much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. Where are you? Are you in the, you're in the paddock or what? I am in deepest Herefordshire, and uh, I've got an old ash tree which has fallen on some land, and I've got to clear it up. So I thought I was being clever by coming down today. Once I've finished the interview with yourself, I'm going to cut up this ash tree, but uh, it's bloody freezing outside, so I will have to do it from the cab of my truck. So you're, so you're just stuck in, stuck in your truck, freeze, freezing your nuts off. It's snowing, is it? Yeah, it was snowing earlier, a bit of sleet, but the sun's out now, and I thought, well, okay, that's cool, but no, it's, it's blowing a gale. And where have you got Saddam's buttocks hidden? Ah, well, uh, <laughs> uh, Saddam's buttocks. Well, I, I did give it to uh, Ken the Nose, and um, and then he told me he gave it to Gypsy Pete. So, so, so the thing's on the run. I can't say too much because of the police. They're after me. They said to me, if the arse or the buttock was to raise its ugly face again, then they would come and uh, arrest me again. I mean, how crazy is that? So... It's literally, it's, it's gone to ground. You, can't, you couldn't sell it or anything. Yeah, no. Um, they, the, the police put out a, a false police a press release, very false. And I was going to take it up with my uh, pro bono lawyer, barrister, but we thought better of it. They basically said that I was lying about the arse. Uh, I never had the arse. And the whole thing's a lot of old bollocks. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so there you go. So they were trying to force spot out of the... Uh, you know, to force him out into the open along with the arse, and I wasn't going to have it. Oh, crafty. Yeah, very crafty. Let's get into the story because it's uh, it's quite a journey to get from how you got from crossing the border in Kuwait into Baghdad and uh, 
and getting your hands on Saddam Hussein's ass. So let's start by just painting the picture. So you you were you were the first person to be arrested, weren't you, for stealing Iraqi property? Is that right? Yeah, I was uh, charged under the United Nations Order Section Eight, stealing or knowingly taking Iraqi cultural property. I mean, absolutely bizarre. And they 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 made that up in retrospect of. Uh, they bought that out in June of 2003 when, in actual fact, the arse was given to me by United States Marine Corps on the 10th of April 2003. So retrospectively, they've made this up. How did they arrest you? What, what, talk me through that. Well, uh, it had quite a bit of publicity. I went to sell it to raise money for um, the Royal Center for Defense Medicine and Hope for the Warriors in America. Uh, these two uh, charities which look after injured veterans. And it was during a divorce, we had to, I had to clear the house. <laughs> and I remembered this thing sitting in the potting shed. And I thought, what could I do with it? And I'd been in and out of Iraq for a number of years. Things were getting quite bad over there. And I, life in this country just carried on without too much thought about the, the servicemen and women over there fighting in what, what I consider to be a... Uh, uh, an unjust war, an illegal war, really. So I decided to sort of try and make good and raise money for charity. I thought somebody might want it, you know, this great talking piece. Uh, and actually, as a, as a, as a piece of art, it, it looks very good. I mean, on the outside, it's quite smooth. It's about five to eight mil bronze. And on the inside, it's very eff- effervescent and very rough. Yeah. And it's extremely sharp. And I cut myself on it. So um, I thought I'd sell it. So my business partner at the time knew this guy called Charlie Hansen, Charlie Hansen of BBC Antiques Road, uh, Roadshow fame. He knew him and uh, up in Derby. So I approached Charlie and said, look, do you fancy sort of selling this? We're trying to raise it money for the veterans. And he said, yeah, and he would waiver his fee. And he said, I've got a track record on selling sort of uh, object to art, as he called it, because he had sold <laughs> Queen Victoria's knickers a few years previous for about eight grand. So, I mean, he sort of had this track record. And also he was known on the TV as well. So uh, that was that was the way to do it. Where do you put where do you put Queen Victoria's knickers once you've got them? Oh, uh, you could fly them, couldn't you? You could stick them on a flagpole. Apparently they were quite big. Wow. In fact, okay. they were huge. Jeez. <laughs> Let's back it up and talk about how you, because um, we'll get to the point where, where you, you started trying to sell it and the amount of money that people were offering mm. for it. But what were you doing in Iraq in the first place? Just to give people an idea of why you were there. Well, I was over there working with uh, a sheikh for the royal family. We're business partners and we were getting small little MOD contracts. And because of my SAS background, para background, we were firing into the sort of the uh, training teams of the Amiri guard, uh, the, the guards and stuff, mainly their special forces. So I was looking for and getting contracts for that. Anything out of the MOD that I could use the sheikh could utilize his sort of waste, his contacts. That's what I was over there. I, I, I was over there on business. You were working with Sky News, weren't you? That came about when I knew the invasion was going to be imminent, or the liberation, as some people say. So it's an invasion. That I was on leave in February of 2003, and uh, I bumped into an old mate of mine who had just left the SAS, and I'd known him in the Paris as well. And uh, he had formed a company called Olive, and their first contract was to take Sky News because they lost out in Gulf War One. They just they weren't really ready, prepared for it. And they didn't want to lose out on Gulf War Two. So this guy, JY, was going to lead this team of maverick, unembedded 
journalists into Iraq, Sky News, and he said to me, look, why don't you come and join us as a backup? And I could use their sat phones. At the time, they had through IF sat phones. Right. And that was about, you know, sometimes it was about £10 a minute. Just so people know, unembedded means you're not with the army. Yeah, there was two types of uh, journalists. I mean, I, I, I was accredited uh, NUJ photojournalist, war, war journalist. I'd done stuff in Afghanistan and um, I kind of wore two hats. And it was an opportunity for me to go and uh, work with JY, work with Sky News team, but also get my copy back to the UK and also double up as a, a secondary uh, security guy. Yeah, so I joined them. Um, and because of my contacts within Kuwait, I was able to find out where the Allied forces were going to go into Iraq, because it was imminent. Uh, my sheikh knew that they were going to close this area called Mutla Ridge. Mutla Ridge is a, sort of the only mountain in Kuwait, Kuwait being a flat land full of sand. Uh, and that was midway between Kuwait City and the border up north Iraq. And Mutla Ridge is quite famous for Gulf War One. It's where the American Air Force smacked all the retreating Iraqis. They just sort of just shot them all up in their Ferraris they'd stolen from Ferraris, Rolls Royces they stole from Kuwait. And of course, all their armament, they were moving north back into Iraq. So that's quite famous. So the Sheikh told me that um, he's had word that they're going to close Mutla Ridge. And Mutla Ridge, is there's only one way into Iraq, and that's the northern road. And if they close, close Mutla Ridge, no one no one would ever get through because you can't go across the desert it's madness you know you wouldn't survive in that heat so i managed to get the team together and told them that, that they were going to close mutla ridge and we managed to get up onto the border before anyone else they closed mutla ridge and uh, the sheikh had a friend who had a little farm up there and we we used the farmstead until we thought the invasion was going to happen how close were you to the front line when the forces were entering iraq during the invasion right up the front, because we heard them move. Where we were, we were slightly right of the main MSR. What's the MSR again? Main supply route. Right. But basically, it's a, it was a, a three-lane hi, three highway going up into Iraq. So we were in front of the Brits, and we knew when the Brits were moving, because you could hear it all. And the artillery gradually grew every day, more and more. More drones were flying over. At the time, they weren't carrying munitions. They they were just taking photographs, you know. So we knew it was imminent that the attack was going to happen, the invasion. And then at one, one point, we decided to break camp and then head for the border, which was only a, a K or so away from us. And because I knew the area, having been up into Abdili, that's the northern town in Kuwait on the Iraq border, Abdili, I, I knew it very well. And there was only one crossing point there. And I, I said to the team, we've got to head for the crossing point. But in order to get to the crossing point, we came across a berm, a big sand berm. The Brits and the Americans have pushed up with bulldozers uh, years and years ago after Gulf War One for the DMZ, dematerialized zone that the United Nations had marked out on the map between Kuwait and Iraq. And in between was no man's land. So we headed for that. The easiest place to cross was where the where the Brits had obviously done their records and pushed a big hole through this big, huge uh, sand berm, big barrier. It's probably about 15, 20 foot high, you know, a massive thing. So we broke through there and I knew that we had to turn left. And because it was a DMZ, it's flat. The bulldozers had completely taken anything out of it and uh, made it flat. So we headed for Abdili the petrol station at Abdili, which was the only sort of main building there. But as we came across, three Cobra gunships appeared 
Cobra gunships are very similar to uh, the Apache, but the US Marine Corps flew Cobra gunships. Anyway, so we see these three things coming towards us. I look over to JY, and at the time, rather similar to what the Russians are doing in Ukraine, the Russians have a Z on their vehicles. We had to put a V, an upside, an up-down V on ours. So every coalition vehicle had to have this white up-down V and on the roof as well. Because obviously then friendly forces would know that that was a friendly, they were friendly forces. But we had uh, flags. I had the Stars and Stripes on mine and JY had the Union flag on his. Why'd you do that? Well, because it's better, big, better than an upside down V, isn't it? On the fucking roof of the vehicle. We thought, well, this is, this is going to be it. You know, I mean, this, this is a better way of saying that, you know, we're friendly guys. From the air, of course. I mean, the Iraqis didn't have an air force, so we were, you know, that's the reason why we had the, the flags on the roof of the yeah. vehicles. So these gunships rock up. <laughs> yeah, they came up, and uh, it was quite frightening because there was three of them. Being ex-paratrooper, I, I can, you know, I know the distances in the air. So, I mean, these two things, was, the two sat back, and the, the, the boss came forward with his nose dipped. He was up about 800 feet. The two at the rear came down. And then the front one came down even closer. I mean, he was down to about 200 feet, I mean, which is quite low, really. And he dipped his nose again. And I'm thinking, Jesus Christ, what the hell is going on here? We're going to be vaporized even before, you know, we've even got across the border, really. There is a saying in my business, never get out of the vehicle. Never, ever get out of the vehicle. But I couldn't do any, think of anything else to, to get out of the vehicle, to let the guy know that, you know, I... I'm a white man and I've got a, I've got the stars and stripes on the, you know, not that it should matter me being white, by the way, but I mean, it's kind of, there aren't many white, Iraq, there aren't many white Iraqis. I'll just sort of uh, cover myself with that one. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> so I slowly got out of the vehicle and um, the, honestly, the, 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 the emotion that I went through was just absolutely incredible because you could, I could see the pilot and I'm sort of got my hands, up in the air and it's it was a left-hand drive vehicle so i came out the left door and i slipped and uh, i was trying to make my movement so slow as if so to let him know that i'm no threat to him of course i slipped and sort of tumbled out of this bloody <laughs> jeep that i was driving in i put my hands up and i could hear jy and everybody shout don't get out the vehicle and then jy got out the vehicle and we were standing there with our hands you know and i think oh my god were you shouting at him were you saying anything to screaming the at him you know, all sorts of profanities. Go on. What were you saying? Fuck off, you damn yank. You know, you can't you see we're Brits, you prat. Uh, please don't kill me, sort of thing, you know. <laughs> so he got the message. I mean, he could hear, obviously he could hear, he could see we were no threat. Uh, but the thing, the, the thing was that we, we had three vehicles, and on the third vehicle was the satellite communications vehicle. Oh, like a big dish. Yeah, it's got this big radar dish and like this thing point sticking out in the middle. You know, you see them, people have them on their houses, but this is a quite a big one. This was, you know, uh, about six foot wide and it looks like an anti-aircraft gun. So, you know, we, we had problems with that a couple of hours later when we got to uh, Safran, the first border town. In all my military career and all my, I, I mean, I've been in this soldiering business for oh, getting on 40 years now. And I, I think that comes real close to being... The, the dumbest thing I've done. You've been in some pretty hot spots. I mean, you you were in the Falklands, weren't you? Yeah, I was. Uh, I, I, I mean, I, I I spent several tours in Northern Ireland. Then I uh, was in the Falklands with two para. I was point man for the daylight attack on Goose Green. Two para were the only. That was my unit. We were the only battalion to fight two battles. We fought Wireless Ridge. 
Uh, we were the first to land on the island, last to turn up, first to land, first to fight a major engagement with the enemy and win a victorious engagement up at Goose Green, where we saved 119 hostages that really? they, the Argentinians had taken prisoner, first to engage on a second battle at Wallace Ridge and first into Stanley, first into Port Stanley, the capital. So, yeah. I don't, I don't know too much about Goose Green. I, I, know that, I, I know the name and I know that it was big, but... I don't know. I don't know too much about it. Are you able to give me a little bit more? Well, you should. Uh, you should read my latest book. There he is, Goose Green. <laughs> give me a little bit more background into into Goose Green. Goose Green is a little settlement, and uh, when we arrived on the islands, we you know we did the old sort of uh, storming the beach in landing craft at night. I mean the paras. Mm. We don't do that shit. You know, we jump from an airplane. Yeah, yeah. It's the Royal Marines that should be doing that, but for some reason they put two para to land at night or early hours of the morning. I mean, none of us had ever seen a landing craft, yet, let alone been in one. I mean, it was just crazy. So we thought that power, a lot of us thought the powers to be, because it was a Navy-led operation, that they were going to sacrifice two para. Serious, I'm serious. They, really? they were quite happy to sacrifice two para than the Royal Marines. I look back at it now and think, well, yeah, but having spent, as, as one grows up and gets older and learns about the politics of war, yeah, I mean, that's quite easily... You could understand that. Well, what were the odds? Like, what, what made you think that they were sacrificing you? Because we'd never been in a landing craft before. Yeah. Some of us had done something up at Ascension on the way down, just a practice drill. None of us had done beach attacks. Where's, where's the Royal Marines? Three commando brigades. The, the commando brigade we were under, two para was under, had two months previously done a full beach assault in Norway with the whole of the brigade and all the elements of the brigade. And they do that for a living. We jump out of aeroplanes. We don't storm mm. beaches. That's for the Marines. So why would they put the paras in such precarious... I mean, we could have fucked up bad. So so why did the bosses, why did the, the headsheds decide to put us? Why couldn't they have put the Marines in? That's what they do. That would have been the safer bet. What were the odds when you got off? Like, so what, was, what was waiting for you on the beach? Well, luckily, it was unopposed. We had the SAS and SP there. I mean, they told us that the enemy had scarpered. But the Royal Navy did sort of drop a few rounds to soften the target up on the beach. So it was kind of, you know, you don't know until you're there, until that ramp goes down. You don't know. We get onto the beach, and then we get up onto a high feature called Sussex Mountains. And we spent five days up there waiting for whoever in command to tell us what to do. Now, Colonel Jones, VC, who died on Darwin Hill, the advance to Goose Green was killed. He wanted to get off because he wanted to get off the mountains again, close with the enemy because, you know, we were losing guys through trench hypothermia. I mean, it was pretty serious shit. I just listened to the latest Channel 4 documentary last week that came out with uh, Colonel Mike Rose, the CO, commanding officer of 2-2 SES at the time. I mean, that man... I've got total respect for him. When I joined the SAS, he had just left. He was saying that they didn't have to do Goose Green, but he wasn't a guy on the ground. He wasn't getting his ass frozen off. He was flying from one warm mess, one ship, to another warm mess. I don't think he ever got cold. And that really sort of pissed me off. And a lot of guys, when he was saying that Goose Green, uh, and Jeremy Moore, the overall commander, said Goose Green should wither on the vine. But what they failed to understand, and, and these are senior officers, what they failed to understand was we were watching, and the Marines on the beach, two power on the high ground, watching the Royal Navy get a good old pummeling. I mean, we lost several ships by the Argentine Air Force. They were extraordinarily brave, unbelievable, you know, and they were bombing the hell out of the Royal Navy. You know, the great Royal Navy, mm -hmm. you know, that's 
it just amazed us young guys 18 19 20 you know 23 24 on that mountain not seeing the enemy getting strife strafed every day through argentine mirages and superintendars and seeing the navy get the arses kicked and seeing all the ships burn i mean it was it was a horrible sight for young soldiers then we learned that the atlantic conveyor the big container ship that contained all our cold weather clothing, all our batteries, all our rations, all our heavy lift helicopters. One, only one Chinook got off, and that was uh, the CH-47. That was Bravo November, quite a famous helicopter. Still flying, as I recall. All, all the Wessex were all sunk on this boat, and, and we needed a moral victory. The troops needed a moral victory, and I think Colonel Jones did the right thing. We went on to attack Goose Green. We were told that there were 400 Argentines there with aircraft crew because it was a little garrison that had these Pacara aircraft on the, on the runways. These Pacara aircraft were ground attack aircraft and fearsome turboprops. They were fearsome against uh, ground troops. A bit like the A-10, American A-10 Warthog, but a smaller version. You know, right. horrendous these were. So they had to be taken out. The battle plan was that uh, we were going to attack at night and it'll all be over first light. A few hours before, while we were getting our briefing, on the World Service, we had radios that could pick up the World Service. Mm. We heard that this guy called John Knott, who was the defence secretary, defence minister, telling the whole world that the 2nd Battalion of the Parachute Regiment was poised and ready to attack the settlement of Goose Green. <laughs> we're actually, it's yes. 10 o'clock at night, a wind swept, it's pissing down with rain, we're under a poncho, a cover, trying to listen to the World Service, and then we hear this shit. I mean, it was just... People were just incandescent with rage. And I remember the stories that came out from Colonel Jones. He says, if any of my men get killed, when I get back to UK, I'm going to sue not, I'm going to sue Margaret Thatcher. Well, they were lucky because a couple of hours later, he was killed. Politicians, eh? Jesus. Well, it just it just makes you... I, I just get so angry with it, and one can't get angry too too often. You know, you have to put a lot of stuff to bed. Colonel Jones got killed on Darwin Hill, which was a feature before Goose Green. And that was quite a hard hill to take. And around about 12 o'clock, this is beautiful, bright, like a day it is today out here, sun shining, very cold. We could see the garrison of Goose Green about 800 metres in front of us. We could see hundreds and hundreds of Argentinians. We could see Kakaras on the, on the runway. What are Kakaras? These ground attack aircraft. Just a turboprop ground attack. They take out ground troops, tanks, stuff like that. We could see them all down there. We were wondering why they weren't attacking us. I mean, there's just a bit of a battle on Darwin Hill. We reckon that they probably thought that we were Argentinians and that they had repelled the British. But come about 12 o'clock, half 12, we got the order to move and we moved off in arrowhead formation down towards Goose Grey, this settlement that we could see. A and B companies were on the right. They were going to take the airfield. C Company was going straight down the middle. And I, I swear you're not, the land was just like a billiard table. There was a few folds in the ground that you could get your head down, but it was just, it was, you know, the British Army doesn't attack during the day. And it certainly doesn't attack 250 paratroopers, attack 400. Normally you would have three to one ratio. That's what the standard tactics are. Anyway, we attacked. We advanced to contact. I was point man in the arrowhead formation. Someone has to be. And then we had the HQ element about 50 metres behind, which was the commander and um, the signals guys and everybody. Then all hell opened up. I ran for cover in one of these folds in the ground. And then the HQ got all shot up. I mean, only one guy survived out of eight or nine. All the rest of them were injured or killed. 
quite a shock. I didn't know that until after the battle, of course. You <laughs> just don't know these things because it all goes to shit then. I ran for my life into this fold of the ground and they hit us with everything. And for three, four, five hours, they showered shit down on us. The noise was horrendous. They hit us with 30 mil Orlikum cannons. They had uh, both the guns that they took off the ships. They had artillery, howitzers, they had mortars, and they had the ground attack Picara aircraft. And all we had, we didn't have any support. We had 800 mortar rounds with two barrels, and we fired them off in the first couple of hours. That's how intense the fighting was. We eventually got to the estuary, the estuary before Goose Green, and then we fought through that trenches. Uh, we took like 20 prisoners. Um, then the Bakara came around and dropped napalm on us. You know, the whole thing. They dropped napalm on you. Yeah, they dropped napalm on us, yeah. Which the British press didn't realize. that They didn't believe it happened, you know, uh, until uh, after the battle, they sent a naval intelligence guy down and found the napalm, you know. At this point, how many, what are the numbers? How many of you guys got and what are you got to take? Well, I mean, it, it was about 250 guys that, because A Company had to stay in whole Darwin Hill. So there was only C Company, which is 50 men, D and B Company, 120 men each. So, you know, it, it, it wasn't, um, and they were getting injured as well, of course. So, mm. so as we advanced forward, the numbers depleted. depleted. As, as night came in, the firing started to slow down. The heavy firing from the Argies had stopped and it all it was small arms. But we had so much, so many injured, we had to get the injured out. You know, when you hear your mates crying and we've run out of morphine and all the shell dressings and everything else, and nobody could get to us because we were so far forward. Every time the, they tried to send ammunition down to us on the stretchers, they came to someone that was injured, one of our guys that was injured. So they had to kick the ammunition off put the injured guy on and obviously take the injured guy back mm. and the ammunition never got to us. So we ended up using Argentinian weapons and ammunition. That's how close it was. And at night we had to get our injured out. A guy who I met and I interviewed for the book, John Greenoff got the DFC to send his flying cross for his work within the battle for goose screen. Incredibly brave guy threw caution to the wind, disobeyed orders. Him and his mate took two small helicopters, scouts, helicopters, broke the ridge at Darwin Hill to come down and find us. Now, he'd worked with two pirate in Kenya, so he, he sort of knew the guys and stuff. Paul Grundy, who was our radio operator, was trying to call for Kazavak, and uh, nobody was responding. And then all of a sudden, he got a call sign come up, and it was John's call sign, and uh, they were talking. John couldn't find us, so what I, I had a camera. Because I've always been a bit of a Tim Page, Don McCullum, you know, <laughs> always been a bit, a bit of a war photographer. And I actually brought John in on the flash of my camera because guys were firing these little mini red flares up at him to let him know that we're here because, because the wind was so bad. And obviously red was the color of our tracer, whereas green was the color of, of the Argentinian tracer. I mean, it wasn't a good idea to fire these red mini flares up at John's helicopter because he thought he'd probably been shot by his own side. But anyway, John eventually made it in on the flash of my camera and uh, another guy with a torch. He kicked out all the ammunition and rations because they never come in light. They always mm. come in with kit. We put all the injured in. He had these pods on the side of the skid. We put the, the two most seriously injured in, Jock Boland, who got his chest ripped open by a, a rocket off a multi-barrel rocket launcher. The discarding salvo cut him. It wasn't an explosion. That, we were that close to the Argies that they were firing these mini rockets at us. And John turned around and this thing cut right across his chest, the, the, the fins of it, and 
bumped him up a bit. The fins of the rocket. The fins of the rocket, yeah. And then this this thing then exploded in the estuary. I mean, it was it was it was surreal. It was unbelievable. So John got in there and uh, flew off, and that was great for us because we had our wounded out of the way, and uh, that was kind of real comforting to know, and also comforting to know that you didn't hear the moans of your mates. You know, I mean, that's something that gets forgotten mm. in war. It must be horrific. Oh, it's, it, it is. I, I look at it and go. Four years it took me to interview these guys for the book. I did 114 interviews. I settled with about 64, only because of the the stories corroborated. Mm. You can't keep making repetition within the book. Honestly, I thought I'd done some stuff, but if there's any anything nice about war, then I think my book Goose Green has got that in the sense that the compassion between the blokes. And even the enemy, even the prisoners, one lasting thought that I will take out from that war. And I know we've had 20 years of fighting in the desert and we've had people shooting prisons and stuff and whatever. I can honestly say the most passionate thing I take from that war is we never shot one prisoner. And we could have. In Goose Green, we had 20 or so of them. Is it a thing that like... Most people just think, well, of course you don't shoot prisoners. Or you, like, is that a thing? Like, uh, Yeah, I mean, well, you don't shoot prisoners. Absolutely no way. But given the circumstances and some of the young guys uh, and all that tension in war and all that hatred that you're conditioned into your body and your mind, we were still clearing trenches. And we were moving so fast into these trenches that we didn't have time to search the enemy properly. A lot of them threw their weapons away, and there was about 20 of them. We all had them laid down, but there was an officer still had his sidearm on, and he wouldn't get down. And, you know, we were still being shot at, and the blokes were selling him to get down, and uh, somebody butt-stroked him, put him down. And then we got napalmed, and that would have angered the guys even more. Mm. But the guys were so well-disciplined, are just amazing. Mm. I've got some amazing stories in the book where the, the blokes that look after the prisoners, you know, back in the A echelons, how they looked after them and how they gave them food and stuff like that. I mean, it's, it's, I'm so, I'm so pleased I took the time out and, you know, writing a book, you don't make money. You know, you're lucky if you do make money. It's a cool thing to have long-term. Yeah. It's I've memorialized and people have come up to me and said, Oh, thanks, Nigel. Thanks, bud. I'm so pleased that you've memorialized these stories. These stories could go to any war, any modern day war, and they could be anybody, you know, you could just substitute, Duke Allen, who's a, one of the guys in my book, to someone else. Uh, they're so profound, and I'm so pleased that I've captured these stories. Yeah, it's a very special book to me. It's the best book I've written. The arse book is the funniest one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's get, let's get back to that. Um, Sorry, we digress, yeah. No, it's, it's, a, it's an incredible story, and I guess like by reading the book, you'll find out more about what happened at Goose Green. But if you're talking about like some of the – I mean – you're saying that was the, the the American gunship where the Cobras came in was one of the hairiest moments, and then you're talking about how you got napalmed and. I think time mellows you. I think you forget how how scared you were, and then the most scared you've ever been will be the last thing that scares the shit out of you. You know. Because there was another incident where the U.S. Marines almost shot you guys, wasn't there? Yeah, shortly after the Cobra incident, well, a few hours after, the Americans actually got into the first town of Iraq, which is the border town of Safwan. I mean, it's a real scummy place, yeah? They were held out. The Iraqis were held out in the mosque, and the Americans didn't want to bomb the mosque, so they gave them a firepower demonstration to a piece of the desert to the left of the mosque, and that convinced the Iraqis to give up. So as it was getting dark, 
we were actually knackered by then. And we pitched up and we, we took refuge in the mosque, not actually in physically in the mosque, but in the grounds of the mosque. And the old might of the uh, US Marine Corps was roaring by us, yeah? And it was getting dark and we'd sort of got some scoff on and we were just pitched up, you know, like the old uh, wagons, you know, like the old early settlers with the wagon. We had the vehicles round in a circle. We were, you know, uh, cooking scoff and having a coffee and talking war stories. And then this this American voice came, shouted out and came in. And, I mean, he was saying, Who, who's fucking in charge and all this, you know? And I, Who the fuck? What the fuck is that? Nick, who was the producer and the leader, cracking guy, unbelievable uh, guy, beautiful man, said, that, oh, oh, I am. <laughs> he said, what the fuck? Cover that fucking thing up. He was obviously talking about our satellite communication vehicle with the big satcom on it, you know, and it looked like an anti-aircraft gun, as, I, as I've said previously, with the Cobra gunships. I mean, he was just about to shoot the hell out of us. I mean, it was crazy. But you guys ended up joining up with the Marines and going into Baghdad with them, didn't you? Yeah, well, the thing was, Sky News had their anchor man attached, embedded, and there were two types of journalists. There were the embedded, which were embedded with the units, whether they were on the ground in Iraq or whether they were on board ship in the Gulf somewhere or in, or in Qatar. And there were the unembedded. I was an unembedded along with the Sky News. That meant we could sort of, be our own bosses and do our own thing. But we were meant to go and see the Brits and, and link up with uh, uh, Jeremy Thompson, who was a Sky in Command. But we got as far as sort of uh, the outskirts and we got stopped by a couple of Russian um, T-72 Iraqi-owned tanks. And the Brits were telling us that, you know, they're still around and uh, we shouldn't go any further. I knew the story was Baghdad. So we, we had a bit of a Chinese parliament and... and Luckily, Nick agreed with me that we should piggyback onto the Marines and head for Baghdad. And that's what we did. We we just sort of, they loved us because uh, I was driving a Jeep, and you know, an American Jeep. And the other guys had Hiluxes and they just loved us. They just thought we were fucking crazy and mad. <laughs> and Nick had the satellite phone. And in order for us to advance to get to the real front lead vehicles, He'd stop and the commanders would phone home with this fucking throw eye phone, you know, and he'd give it to some of the guys. And that's how we got our that's how we got our rations. And that's how we got forward because of the Christ knows what sky the sky bill was for that phone at the end of the war. Oh, so you bartered with the sky satellite sky satellite phone so they could ring home. Yeah, we, we were called the crazy Brits. They called us the crazy Brits. You were, you were. And then you, you guys got into um into Baghdad. Can you talk me through the. Because it's quite iconic, the pulling down of Saddam Hussein's statue. But can you can you talk me through the moment you arrived at the square where Saddam's statue was? Yeah. Well, the evening before, we were basically we were captured by the U.S. Marines and held hostage in the Republic the Republican Guard barracks. The Americans had taken that over, and they thought it too dangerous for us to be out on the road. Right. Uh, so they they held us hostage within this Republican Guard barracks. And it was the famous barracks where, where it's got the sports arena, where Saddam used to do all the beheadings and all the horrible shit like that. Oh. So they kept us, you know, they didn't keep us under guard, but they told us not to go out. But um, since J.Y. and I knew the way the Americans work and how the system works, the army works, the military works, we knew the guards on the main gate were at the lowest ebb around about three, four o'clock in the morning. And that's when we decided to make our uh, escape. And that's what we did. We made our escape behind a bunch of uh, American Marines 
in their army vehicles going out on patrol. We just, you know, snuck in behind them. So the guy on the gates just probably thought we were part of that. Obviously didn't know that we were in the camp and probably didn't have any orders to say, stop these guys. Wouldn't have got down to their level anyway. So anyway, first light came. We're dodging through Baghdad City. We had a basic map, sort of tourist map. Yeah, something like that. And uh, we eventually got onto this street called Sadoon Street which was the main street that we wanted. It's like a long street. It's like a Parisian street, really. Cobbles and all sorts of crap on it. Tree-lined. So we got onto this thing, and it led us up to Ferdor Square. Ferdor Square was where the statue was. It's like a big roundabout. And on the right-hand side of Ferdor Square is the Palestine Hotel, which was the biggest building in Baghdad at the time, and it housed all the world press. It's where Saddam put all the world press so we could keep an eye on them. And remember, journalists were there a month before. So that's where we were heading for. So we eventually got up to the uh, Ferdos Square at the end of Sadoon Street and the Palestine Hotel. Now, the media knew we were coming. And so Nick Parnell, and we'd lost a reporter on the way. After we got attacked in Al Nazareth, he, a guy called Ross Appleyard said, oh, that was enough for him. We lost the camera crew and a couple of other guys. By lost, you're talking about a lot of them like ditch you guys. They're like, this is, this is too heavy. Yeah, I said, fuck this. After, after the battle for Al Nazareth, which we talk about in the book, but I won't talk about it now. Uh, it's the biggest battle in the, 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 in the war. And fair play. They said, oh, I've had enough. And it took us a day or so to, to get them back and get a replacement. So we eventually got into uh, Sadoon, end of Sadoon Street. I could see the square. We knew nothing about the statue going down, really, apart from the last-minute reports that evening on the 9th. Nick Parnell wanted to do a live feedback to London with, with uh, Lisa, uh, so he went and seen all these journalistic mates, and uh, there were some famous names there, and he met the guy that was embedded from Sky News, and they did a live feedback. To London, I was thinking, oh, what the hell can I do? So I then, I said, I'm going to have a look at this statue they're on about. So I went up and seen these Marines and gave them a bit of army parlance talk, you know, and uh, managed to get in there. And um, I see the statue, a huge old statue laying down there, face down. And I thought, oh, right, yeah, okay. And I thought, oh, I'd like a bit of this as a, you know, like a little memento, a trinket, as you do. Because you take mementos from every war, you get every, everything you've been to, right? Yeah, soldiers do it. So you shouldn't really pick up shiny things, but, uh, you know, well, if it's a bit safe, shiny things to have a habit of exploding, don't they? So I said to this Marine, I said, oh, can I have a bit? And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he came back. And two of them came back. One had a, uh, a steel disc cutter. I remember it to this day. And uh, the other guy came back with a sledgehammer and a jimmy bar. He says, what bit do you want? And I says, well, well, any bit will do. And we started smashing away at this, and nothing was budging. In the meantime, the guy with the disc cutter was cutting off the, the hand. you know the hand? The defiant hand? Yeah. He was cutting it off down by the elbow there. So we're smashing away. And then I said to this Marine, I said, look, let's try this bit here, because it was a bit of a, there was a bit of a scene. And we smashed, and we, I was leaving the smashing, and eventually this huge piece popped off. And he said, will that do you, buddy? Don't do an American accent, you know. I said, uh, yeah, I only wanted a small piece, you know, like a size of a fag box. <laughs> <laughs> so I had this thing. There's, there were still small arms going around, and the, 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 we, were, we were being sniped at. You're being shot at at this time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, not directly at me, but, you know, they were they were winging around. But the Americans had covered that with their 50 cal. They were taking out buildings, parts of buildings with their 50 cal. And I see this guy the other side of the square with the head in this sort of trolley, this bogey-like trolley. I thought, I can't be the head, you know. 
I know what the Arabs are like. You know, they're a bit dodgy. Like, uh, you know, they'll sell anybody any any dull, dumb Western or anything. You know. So I thought I'm going to go and check this. You know, you got you got the better of me. So I went over there, and I said to the old boy, and I said, "Look, the head." He went, mm, "Yes, yes, yes." I went, "Salam alaikum," and tried my best Arabic on him, and <laughs> you know, and he mentioned something about a Western, American Western film, and. Uh, I said, the head, head. He says, yeah, yeah. I said, he said, Saddam, Saddam. And he started slapping it with the rope because he had a rope, a noose around it, like they like, hanging it. And I said, how much? Shoe for loose, shoe for loose. And he said, oh, 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 oh. And then I had about 160 odd dollars on my body. I had some sewn into my collars, you know, my, my shirt. I had a couple of, couple of dollars in my wallet. I had some in my boots, some in my belt. You know, I had it all around me. So I, so I offered him, I think I offered him about 10 bucks. And he said, no, we were sort of bar- bartering. And all of a sudden, this Marine was screaming at me to get back because the sniper had sniped at me. And I realized it was at the same time the snipers were sniping at me, the Marine called me back because I could hear the crack and thump. And I could see the, this shop front where I was by was sort of, I could see the, the, the strike marks on it. So I, 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 so I left the old boy there, ran back, and the Marines called me back into the cord. And, and, and I stayed there within the square for a bit. And I was utterly convinced that it was the head of this statue. Now, there's loads of heads and there's loads of statues in Iraq at the time. But this was what it was because I took pictures of it and I've got pictures of it. And it was definitely that. So I'm thinking, wow. But the thing was with that, if I'd have taken it, I wouldn't have got in the Jeep. It would have had to be on the roof of the fucking Jeep. You're not putting that in your carry-on? No. (laughs) But whereas the arse, I could get in the truck because it was about a metre square. So anyway, a couple of days in Baghdad, it all started going a bit mad and people were running around and think they saw Saddam here, Saddam there. And I thought, oh, fuck this. The Sky News had to go up to Tikrit, which was Saddam Hussein's hometown. But they had a change. We had to wait a couple of days for the change of the team. And I decided, look, I said, I'm going to head back to Kuwait, you know. And you had Saddam's ass with you at this at this point? Uh, yeah, yeah. The Saddam's ass was, uh, was in the back of the Jeep. I said, look, I'm going back. I'm an independent, so I could go any time. And three or four guys said, yeah, let's go back. And um, we got ambushed on the tell way me about, out. Tell me about the ambush. Oh, I've already got history with the police, with Saddam's arse. <laughs> I eventually wanted to go back, and um, JY had to stay on to, to welcome in the new team. But uh, J- Jeremy Thompson, a, a reporter from The Sun, Andy, the cameraman from Sky, and Nick yeah, Nick came back with us, yeah, in, in two vehicles. I gave him a briefing before I left, you know, an anti-ambush briefing, because I didn't want anybody to fuck my journey back on the way back. I wanted them to listen to the orders. I did. Journalists are good, are good at lots of things. They're good at asking questions, and I didn't need them to ask questions. And the other thing they're good at is absorbing information. Mm. All I wanted them to do was to listen to what I was telling them, and I didn't want any fucking reasons why, because I know my business. So I told them that we had to take off all the all the masking tape from the lights because we were going totally non-tack. Uh, and I said to Andy, I think he was the second vehicle, I said, if you see my reverse lights go on, you fucking get the fuck out of there, you know, because I'm not stopping for anyone. I'm not having a chat with anyone. I'm getting the fuck out. Didn't think it, anything would happen, but you always have to cover every option, every option. So that's what I did with the briefing the night before. Anyway, early hours, we pulled out of Baghdad. In Baghdad, they had some quite nice road setups, but the Americans had flattened all the lampposts with the tanks, okay, to get you where you want to go, you know, to put you in somewhere. 
and the Iraqis did the same thing. So there was two sort of mind, mind games going on here. The Iraqis did it before the Americans got in, of course. They tried to move the Americans into ambush positions. Anyway, we're on this ring road, I think, heading east, and then we're going to touch a bit of south to head back. South is the border, 400 kilometers. And then these these flattened lampposts were getting, getting smaller and smaller distance between the two of them. They basically concentrated this into an area where I could see an American Abram tank up on the ridge, and I thought, oh, that's where they want us to go. But the Abraham tank hadn't come as far as we'd gone. They were just, they were making their way up into Baghdad first time, I later found out. So these flattened lampposts were uh, putting us into an ambush position, which I was kind of getting a bit aware of. And then all of a sudden we got sniped up, we got shot at. Paul, who was with me, I smashed his head down and he was gibbering like a, you know, I just, I thought, oh, what the fuck am I doing with these people? You know, they're going to get me killed. Paul's a lovely guy, but he just flapped, you know, and I smashed his head down and he had this Kevlar helmet on and I remember smashing him down. I've got this Jeep, this V8 thing into reverse and I crunched it back and I think, fucking Andy, you better not be behind me, mate. And he wasn't. Fair play to Andy. He'd gone right back and got off to a safe distance. And then the other problem was we had to still go forward. And then um, we so we drove very slowly. <laughs> but with the Abraham tank, who had moved a bit closer to us, and then the Americans were waving us on. But yeah, that was quite scary. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Americans had opened up a military break in the border. But since I knew the route in and out of Safwan, the way we came, I thought we'd go through that way. But what happened was we we got ambushed there again. It was a whole crowd of people. That... Yeah, a whole crowd gathered around us. And, you know, I, I've been trained and I know from past experience that you just crack on with it. You know what I mean? It's either them or yourself. And it's it's that simple. A split second, you lose your concentration. You think, what if? You shouldn't think, what if? Paul started saying, I said to him, Paul, hang on, mate. I'm going through. You can't do You can't go through. You can't go through. I just put the old V8 put my foot down and went through them and blokes were bouncing off. And, and he, Paul's going a bit mad, really. I said, mate, 
they'll fucking drag you out. And then all of a sudden the back window went in. There was some creature trying to get in, but I was going pretty fast by then. And yeah, we eventually made it to the border, cross no man's land, the uh, DMZ. And then we pull up at this uh, army Kuwait police checkpoint that we'd been there three, four weeks previous. Basically they stopped us and they wouldn't believe we'd been to Baghdad. They just wouldn't, wouldn't have it. And a couple of the guys were carrying like pictures of Saddam that they'd got out of the Republican Guard, fucking AK-47 magazines, you know, empty. So the police, quite rightly, and the army, quite rightly, sort of pulled us to one side and gave a quick search. And uh, they were searching my Jeep. And, you know, it's like 55 degrees. I mean, that's real hot. The soldier's searching it. And he's going, what's this? I said, oh, sandbags. He said, what is this? Meaning the arse. I said, oh, for bullets, bullet catcher, because it was behind my seat. And he went, oh, okay, okay. The captain came out, arrested us, basically, informal arrest, took us in, held us hostage for a few hours. Didn't believe we'd been to Baghdad, but we eventually, after some cool coke and fresh fruit, you know, it's beautiful that he believed us. I made a call to the sheikh. Sheikh got the captain on the phone and they, they released us, you know. We eventually got back to the hotel, dropped the guys off. I think it was, the, I think they stayed at Sheraton. I had my apartment, but I had to get the Jeep fixed. So uh, I went and got the back window fixed and um, and then that was it. And then a few days later, I uh, I decided to fly out. I uh, took the arse with me. I had to go down to the souk, the market, to buy the biggest sort of shell suitcase I could find to fit this fucking thing in. And it just about fitted in. When I was going through, I checked in at British Airways. When I was going to uh, go through the customs and that, the British Airways, you know, usual thing. Have you done your case? What's in this case? Are you carrying any of these items? No, 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 no. Uh, the guy said to me, what's in? Because I normally travel light. So I had one carry-on bag and one suitcase. And he's, he says, so what's in there? I said, oh, Saddam's arse. He went, <laughs> I says, yeah, Saddam's arse. He says, uh, oh, that'll be 300 and something odd pounds extra baggage. You know, I, they charge me for extra baggage. 165 dirhams, I think, or Kuwaiti dinars. At the time, yeah, female quid. Uh, and that's it. That's how it is. And eventually got back and, yeah. And then you put it up for auction. Well, yeah, several several years later. Uh, yeah, you just left it in your garage, didn't you? Just like just milling around. With- well, it was in the potting shed, yeah. And obviously the house, we sold the house, so I had to get out. And then going back to what I was saying about um, uh, raising money for the Royal Centre for Defence Medicine and the Hope for the Warriors, because I felt, I felt the veterans in Iraq and Afghanistan had been forgotten about. So I I put a, a reserve on it of £250,000 because a friend of mine in Dubai said that he would sell it for 40000 minimum, put a reserve on it. So I thought since it's his first outing and I'd try it, I'd just be very cheeky because Charles Hansen said twenty five, and I thought, no, I won't sell it for 25000 That's crazy. I sort of times it by 10. Then that's when my problems happened. It didn't sell at auction because it didn't meet the reserve. And I was taking it back. I got a call because I live in a, in quite a rural location. I've got a place that's, that's really isolated. I'm driving down this track to my place and I get this call. I don't normally do no call to ID, but since it had been in the press and I thought could be another journalist wanting to talk about it. So I answered it. I said, yeah. He said, is that Spud? But normally people that know me call me Spud, my nickname. Uh, I said, yeah, go on, mate. And he says, uh, this is a friend. And I went, oh, not that old chestnut. He said, no, seriously, it's a friend. I said, go on, what you got? And he says, uh, you still got the arse? And I thought, oh, fuck it. I says, yeah, I've got the arse, yeah. He says, well, 
the police want it. I said, the police want my arse. He says, yeah, they want the arse you've got. I said, all right. And he said, no duff. And no duff means in army parlance that, you know, this is not, this is not a drill. This is true. So I thought, oh, I believe him. He's an old, uh, he's an old soldier, you know. <laughs> so anyway, I, I said, when are they coming down? I said, you know, you gotta let me know. He says, well, when are they coming down? He says, what's today? I said, Friday. He said, how about Monday? So I thought, there you go. Obviously a friend that was giving me the heads up on when they came down. So I was a police officer that had worked in the army that knew you were in the army and was on your side and sneakily giving you information. That's awesome. Mm. Well, I later found out that it was somebody in the Met. And when the accusation of alleged theft was made, it came through the Iraqi embassy. And of course, they had to go through the Met in being in London. But someone in the Met realised that the jurisdiction where the arse was being sold, quite cleverly, thought, fuck me, we don't want this hot potato. Let's get rid of it. Let's send it up to the Derbyshire Constabulary. We don't want anything to do with this. And they battered it up there. So they came down on the Monday morning. And had you hidden it by that point? Where was it? Oh, it'd gone on the run by then, mate. I had the whole weekend. Yeah, it was hidden in a farmer's field. How much have you? <laughs> how, much, how much have you been offered for it? How much could you have made on it? What we what I've been trying to do over the last few years, and Iraq's obviously got a lot more pressing problems, but I've been trying to uh, correspond with the Iraqi embassy, and they won't take my calls. They, they won't return my letters, emails. I want to negotiate so so we can give half to the Iraqi people, or they can have it for the embassy. I want it to be sold at auction. Yeah, so we raise money for original causes, and then do a fifty fifty split with the Iraqi government, and they can have it in their museum or not as the case may be but we're, we're not at that position at the moment so it's still on the run uh, and the police are still threatening that if it shows its ugly head it's they're going to come down and uh, arrest me what's the biggest offer you've been given for it well, i can't reveal that i tell you one thing well, after the auction I, I then went back into kuwait Sheikh Hamoud said to me, look, I'm going to an Islamic art festival. He had to go and do a, open this Islamic art festival in Kuwait City. So I, I went along with him and he's there doing his bit, piece to camera. And I'm sort of the only guy in a suit. And I turn around, there's another guy in a suit, a Westerner. And it turned out, I started chatting. He's a Texan, but he lives in New York and he's an art dealer, Islamic art. I asked him about the, if he knew about the arse, Saddam's arse. He said, yeah, buddy, of course I know. Uh, I said, all oh, right. I said, oh. I said, well, I'm the man. I've got it. He went, what? And then I sort of said to him, how much do you think it's worth? He said, buddy, he said, between seven and 10 million US. I mean, I was just like, what? And I said, what do you mean? I said, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? The bronze from the... He said, yeah, yeah. He said, it's the provenance. It's the provenance that makes the worth. He said, think of the Mona Lisa picture. And I know the Mona Lisa picture. He said, it was only came to fame when it was stolen in... Uh, I think 1913, and everybody went to the Louvre to to look at the, the sort of dust mark that it had made. He said that today, if that painting never came up for sale, and it never will, that'll fetch, that'd be the first painting to fetch a billion dollars. But he said it'd never come up for sale. He said, and you know how big it is? I said, well, no, not really. He said, it's small. It's about 18 inches by 18 inches. He said, if you saw that in a, in a garage sale, he said, you wouldn't pay 10 bucks for it. Mm. He said, it's the provenance that makes the object, the worth. Oh, there's so much good that money could go towards if the bureaucrats would just let it happen. Yeah. I, I was just start during COVID, just as COVID started, I was approached by a London theatre. They wanted to do a stage play of it. And then recently, with the Goose Green book launch I did at the Special Forces Club, 
those who know it, where it is, they know where it is. After that, I was approached by a guy that kind of likes likes the story, uh, do do a screenplay from it, and, and I'm like, yeah, okay, well, let's. So I'm trying to move down that because that's going to be so funny. Mm. I mean, you can make it. You could sort of do like a Guy Ritchie thing, couldn't you? <laughs> you know the way he makes those incredibly funny British movies. You could do something like that. I'm sure Guy Ritchie's listening to this. Well, let's hope so. Yeah, yeah, you can get get in touch. I mean, the story is just. It's just every time I tell the story, people laugh, you know, and I can't help but laugh all the time about it. It is a Guy Ritchie type story because there's so much action around the whole bit in Kuwait and then going over to Baghdad. It's like a Keystone Cop thing as well. The way the police chased me was incredible. You think I'd stolen the fucking crown jewels? Well, you, you just about you just about have now. It's insane. The reason why I think they persecuted me for so long and still doing it. They bailed me seven times, seven bloody times. It's because I reckon some apparatchik in the Iraqi embassy or some high-ranking Iraqi wanted it, and they just mm. put pressure on it. They thought I would just give it back. I mean, that's what the cops said. Just give it back and it'll all go away. What planet do they live on? I've made it the work of art. It's it's me. It's my my independent work of art now. Yeah. You've, you're the one that's made it famous. I'm the one that's made it famous, yeah. It's my ass. <laughs> it's my ass on the line as well. Seven to ten years they threatened me with. Really? Fucking seven to ten years. And where are you at with that now? It's just, it's there. I mean, on the 20th anniversary next year, it's going to come out. It might do another trip around London. <laughs> or it might not. Oh, can I please be involved in this? Oh, no, I don't want to be, actually. I don't want to be an accessory. No, no. I mean, it's just so crazy. Maybe we get someone to, uh, I'll help write the screenplay and, uh, you know, crack on with it. I mean. Because you took it out around London beforehand. That's the joke, isn't it? Because you took it on a wee journey. Yeah, it's like its last tour. That was so funny, that was. And the Damien Hurst exhibition. Man, that's crazy. What? You took it into an ex exhibition? Yeah, in uh, Damien Hurst's Golden Skulls exhibition. Me and a friend of mine, quite a famous photographer in the uh, 80s and 90s, sports photographer, Duncan Rabin, he had these cards made up, you know, artifact, Saddam's arse, special artifact. And we went into the British Museum and got it, had pictures of it by the big pharaoh. And, and then we went into Buckingham Palace and uh, St. Paul's Cathedral where all these guys were worshipping. They were at some kind of uh, demonstration and we had them worship. They were worshipping it. You know, and then we got it into sneaked into Damien Hurst's Golden Skulls exhibition, where I kept the guy talking at the front desk, pretending I was going to buy one of these skulls. Uh, and then uh, Duncan went round the corner. We were quite lucky, really, because the the gallery was a dogleg. Put this, he put the sign up, put the arse up, took pictures of it with the next to the Golden Skulls. That's so funny, man. <laughs> oh, Nigel, we'll, we'll leave it there. Thanks, mate. This You've got some great stories and uh, no doubt, obviously, in your book, Bring Me the Ass of Saddam, it's hilarious. And then uh, Goose Green is your latest book, isn't it? Yeah, Goose Green, yeah. It's out now, yeah. Well, if you like this episode, go and, go and get your hands on it. It's in, uh, on Amazon. I, that's where I found it. And uh, if you did like this episode, well, I'm working really hard on growing this podcast, but genuinely need your help. If you can get one person to listen and or subscribe to The Andy Rowe Show. It'll make a massive, massive difference. You don't have to. I can't make you, but if you do, I'll love you.